Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. I want to introduce you to a uh, young lady. She lived in 1996 in Phoenix, Arizona, and this is her story. 1996, she lived by herself in Phoenix, Arizona, and she was in her late 20s. She was a park ranger, and her job was to trap animals that wandered out of the desert. She caught coyotes and raccoons and the occasional mountain lion and skunks, lots and lots of skunks, which often sprayed her when they were caught. And this is what she said to Drake Stimson and his colleagues while they sat in her living room one day. I'm single. I'd like to find someone to have kids with. I go on lots of dates. I mean, I think I'm attractive, you know. I'm smart. I feel like I'm a good catch. But her love life was crippled, she explained, because everything in her life smelled like skunk. Her house, her truck, her clothing, her boots, her hands, her curtains, even her bed. She had tried all sorts of cures. She bought special soaps and shampoos. She burned candles and used expensive carpet shampooing machines, and none of it worked. When I'm on a date, I'll get a whiff of something that smells like skunk, and I'll start obsessing about it, she told them. I'll start wondering, does, it, does he smell it? What if I bring him home and he wants to leave? I went on four dates last year with a really nice guy, a guy I really liked, and I waited forever to invite him to my place. And eventually he came over, and I thought everything was going really well. And then the next day he said he wanted to take a break. He was really polite about it, but I keep wondering, was it the smell? You know, this young lady is not somebody I know personally, and unless you worked in the park ranger system in Phoenix in 96, I don't know that you know her either, but she's describing a pretty hopeless situation. She has a dream. That dream is to find somebody who would love her and somebody that she could build a family with. And yet, as her dream sits here, she is in a present reality that makes that dream seem so distant, so impossible. Because as she's pursuing finding somebody to love, those people she's afraid smell her present situation and won't allow that dream to become a reality. That's not my specific story, but I've been in moments where I felt hopeless. I've been in moments where I felt helpless. Anybody else feel that way ever in life? couple of folks. That's great. There's eight of us. We're going to have a support group right after this. Man, we feel hopeless. We feel helpless. We're not really sure how to make our present reality and our future dreams come together. You know, last week we started a brand new sermon series called The Great Adventure, and it was this idea that the Bible is really calling us to live a greater adventure than our lives currently are. And we believe that God is calling us to something great and something grand. And I admitted then, and we admit together, that sometimes the daily rhythm and routine of our lives does not feel like a great adventure. We wake up and we get our kids off to school and we go to work and we pay the bills and we run errands and we sit in Atlanta traffic. It does not feel like a great adventure. And I admit that, but I don't think that that negates the idea that Scripture is calling us, compelling us to live a great adventure, compelling us to live something grander than the lives that we are currently living. And so last week we talked about this guy named Saul who became Paul. And today I want to introduce you to another young woman, not our park ranger friend. But to introduce you to that young woman, I've really got to tell you a little more of her story to bring you up to speed. 
Somewhere in history around the year 480 or 470 BC, there was a king, his name was King Xerxes, who was a Persian king, and he oversaw 127 provinces from India to really northern-day Egypt. And those 127 provinces were made up of a lot of different people that had been, uh, were in those places, and, and this, this empire had come on and, and taken over. And in, that pro- in those provinces were also a bunch of Jewish people that had been exiled and brought from their homeland, and they were a part of uh, this kingdom as well. And so King Xerxes was overseeing these 127 provinces. And one of the things that King Xerxes loved to do was party. I mean, he could always find a reason to celebrate, always find a reason to party. And so King Xerxes would throw parties all the time. Well, one day he decided to throw a party and that party lasted 180 days. I mean, I get bored after 30 minutes at a party, but 180 days. And what he did is he said, hey, everybody in the province, you can eat anything you want to eat. You can drink anything you want to drink. You can do anything you want to do for the next 180 days. And they did. And during those 180 days, the people of the kingdom had a great time. Well, you know what you do at the end of a 180-day party? You know how you end that? You throw a seven-day party to celebrate how awesome the 180-day party was. And that's what King Xerxes did. At the end of a 180-day party, he threw himself a seven-day party to talk about how amazing the 180-day party that just ended was. And so he threw a party then in those seven days, not for the entire kingdom, but for the people of the palace and the people that were a part of his army and the people that were part of his guard. And it was mostly all men. And so his queen, Queen Vashti, she also threw a party for all of the women in the palace there and the the women that were connected to the palace. And so you've got King Xerxes having his party with all the men and Queen Vashti having her party with all the women for seven days to celebrate how awesome the 180-day party that just ended was. And so on day seven, King Xerxes decides, man, I'm feeling good. I want to brag to everybody in my party how awesome and how hot my wife is. And so I'm going to have Queen Vashti come to my party, and she'll be the only woman here so that I can tell everybody, look at the queen, look how amazing she is. And so he sends word through one of his servants to go and get Queen Vashti and call her out of her party to come to his party so he can show her off. The servant shows up, says, Queen Vashti, King Xerxes would like you to come to his party. And she said, no, my party is better than his party, and I want to stay in my party. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the culture of that day, but you did not say no to a man if you were a woman, and you did not say no to the king no matter who you were, especially if you were a woman. That's kind of the way I run my house. (laughs) I mean, I'm not the king, but you understand. I'm totally kidding. I was just making sure you were with me. So Queen Vashti was like, no, I'm not going to your party. My party's better over here. We're going to hang out over here, have more fun at our party than your stinking party. I'm not going. Well, King Xerxes was upset about what he heard from Queen Vashti, but he wasn't the most upset person in the kingdom. His servants were the most upset people in the kingdom because they said to King Xerxes, King, this is bad news. If rumors spread throughout the kingdom that a woman said no to a man, and that the queen had the audacity to say no to the king, then every woman in the kingdom is going to start saying no to her husband. And I'm telling you, this is a bad deal, and you need to do something about it, king. And the king said, well, what do you think I need to do? said, well, you need to strip her of her royal title. She could no longer be the queen. And you need to kick her out of the palace and make sure she never has an, an opportunity to stand in front of you ever again. And you need to go and find you a new queen. And King Xerxes said, That sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. So they kick her out of the palace, say that she can't ever be in front of King Xerxes ever again, and they go hunting for a new 
queen. So they send out a decree to all 127 provinces, and they say to all the leaders, you need to be looking, and there's really only one criteria. She's just got to be beautiful, right? Same way I went looking for my wife. I'm trying to redeem what I did earlier. Y'all just help me a little bit right there. Nobody? All right. That's all right, husbands. I feel, I feel you. I appreciate you not helping me right there. Um, so they say, hey, I want you to go find the most beautiful woman in all of the kingdom, all 127 provinces. Well, in one of those provinces, there was a man named Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jewish man, and he had been brought out of Jerusalem during that exile. He had been brought out, and he was now living in one of those provinces. He had a cousin, and that cousin had a daughter, but his cousin had died, and there was no other family members, and so he took that daughter into his house. And it was kind of like his second cousin twice removed or something, but he brought her in and adopted her as his own daughter. And that daughter's name was Esther. You can read about her story in the Old Testament book of Esther. And so Esther now is living with Mordecai, and word comes through all the provinces that they're looking for a new queen. Well, Esther was beautiful, and everybody in the province knew it. Everybody in the kingdom that, was, that knew Esther knew that she was beautiful. And so what they did is they said, okay, Esther, we want you to join up in this program as we're looking for these new que- this new queen. And so anybody that was beautiful in the kingdom was brought to the palace... And they were given 12 months to use all of the king's finest oils and spices and all of the beauty products that were available at that time in history. And so they gave that to Esther and to all of these other women who would potentially become the next queen. And so she moves to the palace. Mordecai also moves over toward the palace and stays by the gate to find out what's going on. Well, after about 12 months of Esther using the finest oils and spices, all the beauty products available to her, she is presented to the king after these 12 months. And he sees her and he recognizes that she really is indeed very beautiful. And he loves her and he makes her the queen. And so no longer is she Esther, but she is Queen Esther. But here's the thing. She's a Jew and she and Mordecai decide that she does not need to tell anybody yet that she's a Jew. And so the king, Xerxes, makes Queen Esther a Jew, the queen over all the land. And nobody knows that she's a Jew. Well, around this same time, there's another guy that's being raised up in power in the kingdom of King Xerxes. His name is Haman. He's kind of the antagonist in this story. Haman is a guy that he, to King Xerxes' face, is supportive and wants to help him and wants to be his right-hand guy. But when he's by himself, he's in it for himself. He wants to make Haman's name great. He wants to make sure he can do the things that he needs to do so that other people like him and respect him. And he really doesn't care that much about what's going on with the king. And so Haman's being raised to power, and through him being raised to power, people are supposed to now bow down to him. He is kind of the king's right-hand guy, and he's getting a lot of opportunities. And so the king has said, hey, when you see Haman walking by, you're supposed to bow down and worship him. And most of the people did that. Almost everybody did. But when Haman would pass by that gate where Mordecai was waiting to get word about Esther, Mordecai the Jew would not bow down to Haman as he's passing by. And it just infuriated Haman. He hated that this Jewish guy, Mordecai, would not bow down to him. And so he wants to kill Mordecai, but he decides there's an even better plan than that. Instead of just killing Mordecai, what I'll do is I will actually try to have all the Jews in the land killed at the same time. So he develops this plan, and he goes in to see King Xerxes, and he says, King, here's what I want to do. 
I want you to know, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I want you to know that there's a group of people that are in your kingdom, and they're not really respecting your authority. They have their own set of rules. They have their own gods that they worship. They have their own language. They have their own customs. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't sound like us. And I think they all need to be put to death. So they never raise up against you and try to overtake your authority. King Xerxes says, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. And so he gives his ring with his signet on it to Haman, and Haman issues a decree that goes out to all 127 provinces. And it says that by order of King Xerxes that on a certain day, a few months in the future, all of the Jewish people in the land are to be put to death, and it's sealed with the king's seal, which means it is irreversible. So in that moment... All of the Jewish people in the land, everybody in the kingdom has just been issued a death sentence. And that decree is sent out through all of the kingdom. Well, Mordecai gets word of this decree. He gets word. He sees what has happened and he sees how it's being spread. And he is so upset and he's mourning and he's grieving. And so he rips his clothes and he takes on sackcloth and, and covers himself with ashes in the Old Testament. This was a sign of mourning and grief. And he does this and word gets back to Esther that Mordecai is acting this way by the gate. And so she sends word and said, Mordecai, what's wrong? Why are you upset? What's happening to you? And he sends to her word of this decree that all of the Jewish people are going to be put to death. And so he wants her to know. And she responds back and says, well, what do you want me to do about it? There's nothing that I can do. This is a hopeless situation and I'm helpless to do anything. Because if the king doesn't call for you to come and talk to him, you can't just go and invite yourself. You're not allowed to do that. If you show up in the king's chambers uninvited and unannounced, he can actually have you be put to death. He has two choices. He can raise his gold scepter and invite you in. But if he keeps it down, the servants take you immediately and they put you to death. Mordecai, there's nothing that I can do. And in perhaps the most famous passage of Scripture in this entire story, in Esther chapter 4, verse 12, we see the response from Mordecai back to Esther. This will be up on the screen, but for reference, it's Esther chapter 4, verse 12. This is the response from Mordecai back to Esther after she says, There is nothing that I can do. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai said, you've got to do something. You think you're a Jew in the king's house, and that makes you exempt. But you're a Jew in this kingdom, and you're going to be condemned to death, just like the rest of us are. But what if you were positioned here to do something for us? What if your position in this royalty is for such a time as this? What if you are the source of our hope, this situation that is so hopeless? What if you are the source of our hope? But let me just warn you, Esther, if you don't speak up, if you don't do something, I promise you God's going to find another way to deliver us and your entire household is going to be put to death. Esther realizes what he's saying is true. And so she says, okay, Tell everybody that you know there in that province to fast 
and pray for me. I will fast and pray for three days as well. I'll have my servants fast. And at the end of the three days, I'll go stand before the king. And I know that's against the law. And he may convict me to death myself. But if I perish, I perish. I've got to do something. And so three days pass. At the end of those three days, Esther goes. She puts on her finest gowns. She puts her hair up, I think maybe in the way that the king liked her to do that. And she goes and she stands out in the hallway outside of the room where the king was on his throne. And every time the door would open, I'm assuming she just kind of hung out in view of the king. Because you can't walk into the room. He's got to invite you in. So the door would open and she would just kind of linger in his sight. And eventually he sees her. And he has two choices. He can raise his golden scepter up and invite her in, or he can keep it down and she would be condemned to death. He raises the golden scepter, invites her in. And she comes in and stands before the king, and he says to her, Queen Esther, what is it that you desire? You ask anything of me, even up to half of my kingdom, and I will give it to you. And in that moment, if you're anything like me, and, and thank God I'm, I'm not Queen Esther in this moment, but I would have rushed in and said, okay, here's the deal. I'm a Jew, forgot to tell you that, so sorry. There's other Jews, we're all condemned to death, and I need you to do something about it. But that's not the way that she responded. He says, listen, you can ask anything of me, even up to half of my kingdom, and it will be yours. And she did not respond by saying, okay, well, here's what I need. She was patient. She waited. She said, King, I, I will ask you, but... Here's what I'd like to do first. I would like to invite you to come to a banquet. You like to party? Let's throw a party and bring Haman with you. King Xerxes was like, that sounds like a good idea. All right. And so they invite Haman. They come to a banquet later at Queen Esther's. And they're having a party. During the middle of that banquet together, King Xerxes says to Queen Esther, what is it that you want from me? You showed up at my palace uninvited, unannounced, You could ask anything of me and you chose not to do it. So now in this moment, what is it that you're lacking? What is it that you want? You ask me for anything even up to half of my kingdom and it's yours. And in that moment, I would have responded and rushed in in that hopeless situation and looked for hope and said, okay, well, hey, again, I'm a Jew. Forgot to tell you that. So sorry. Bunch of other Jews. We all live here. We've been condemned to death. I need you to do something about that. But she did not respond that way. She said, you know what? I I think we need to throw another party tomorrow night. You like to party. I think we need to throw another party tomorrow night. Just me and you and Haman. That sounded good to Haman because he was getting his way. He was getting to hang out with King Xerxes and Queen Queen Esther and nobody else was getting to hang out with the two of them. And so he's like, sounds great to me. King says, okay. And so they go their own way. As Haman was leaving the party, he goes by the gate and Mordecai's sitting there. And all the other people as he's walking are bowing down and there sits Mordecai and he refuses to bow down. And as excited as Haman was leaving that party, he was so ticked off that that Mordecai was not bowing down to worship him that he got home and he told his wife and he told his friends how awesome the party was. But he was like, man, I'm so upset because I passed by Mordecai and he still won't bow down and worship me and I don't know how to fix this and this is crazy. We got to do something about this. And one of his friends said, well, you know what we need to do? Let's build a 75-foot-tall, your Bible probably calls it a 50-cubits-tall, pole that we use to kill Mordecai. Haman says, that sounds like a great idea. You guys work on that. I'm going to get some sleep because i got another party tomorrow, and you guys work on that. So they're like, all right. So they start building the 75-foot-tall pole that they can use to kill Mordecai. He goes to sleep. Esther, we think, probably goes to sleep. But the Bible tells us that King Xerxes can't sleep. He's restless. 
He can't sleep. He can't rest. And so King Xerxes asks his servants to do what my kids ask me to do when they can't sleep. Read them a story. And so King Xerxes is looking for something to help him rest. And so he asks them to read for him out of the book of records. Well, in the book of records, there were tons of stories. But one of those stories was about the time that Mordecai, when he was standing by the gate, heard two palace guards uh, plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. And so Mordecai tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and those two palace guards were put to death. Well, Esther got the credit in the palace because they didn't want to tell about Mordecai, but the people recording the story knew that Mordecai had been the one to give word to Esther. So the king asks the servants, what was ever done for Mordecai, and what can I do to repay the debt to him for him saving my life and spoiling this assassination attempt? And the servants said, nothing's been done for him. He said, well, that can't be. We've got to do something for him. So early the next morning, Haman comes in to see King Xerxes. And King Xerxes asks Haman a question. He says, what should I do for someone that I owe everything to? Well, if we know anything about Haman now, he thinks that he's talking about him. And so Haman, you know, kind of starts thinking creatively. He says, well, King, for somebody you owe everything to, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to get one of the horses that you yourself have actually ridden on. You need to take some fine clothes that you yourself have actually worn. You need to take your crown that has your seal on it. You need to put that robe on this person. You need to put that crown on this person. You need to perch them atop this horse of yours. And you need to ride them through the streets and declare, this is a person that the king himself is indebted to. King Xerxes says, that sounds like a great idea. Will you go do that for Mordecai? I can't find it in the Bible, but I think that's where Haman swallowed his tongue. (laughs) So he goes out, gets Mordecai up from beside this gate, puts the king's robe on him, puts the king's crown upon his head, sits him atop the king's horse, rides him through the streets of the province, saying, this is a man in whom the king is indebted. Haman is furious. But he doesn't have time to really be upset because he's got to go to a party with King Xerxes and Queen Esther. He walks into the party. It's just the three of them there. They're eating, they're drinking, they're having a good time. And all of a sudden, King Xerxes says to Queen Esther, okay, you've got to tell me what it is you need. I mean, you've been waiting. You've got to tell me what it is that you need. You ask me for anything, even up to half of my kingdom, and it's yours. I promise I'll give it to you. And she says, okay, king. She says, I'm a Jew, and my people have been condemned to death, and it's been done on behalf of your name. And so me and the people like me, in just a few days, will be put to death, and it was ordered on your behalf by someone in your cabinet. The king is furious, and he said, who would do such a thing? Well, there's only three people in the room. And she says, it was Haman. The king stands up, runs out of the room, and runs into the palace gardens to catch his breath, to calm himself down. But Haman's pretty smart. He decides to stay into the room to plead his case before Esther so that when the king comes back, Esther can be on his side. And I'm sure it's not recorded this way in Scripture, but I'm sure he's begging for everything and promising everything. And please, can you just help me, please? And she's sitting on a couch, and he walks over, and he sits down next to her on that couch, which was a no-no in that society. 
And he sits down on that couch next to Queen Esther at the same moment that King Xerxes walks into the room and he screams at the top of his lungs, what are you going to do, kill her yourself right now? They walk over to Haman. The servants put a bag over his head, which is to say, you are dead to me. And they're marching him out of the room. And one of the servants says one of the funniest things I've read in Scripture, which makes me demented because somebody's about to die. But one of the servants says to King Xerxes, King, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that there's a 75-foot pole over there by Haman's house that he was going to use to kill Mordecai. Maybe we could use that to kill Haman. And the king's like, sounds good to me. Let's do that. (laughs) And Haman dies on the instrument that he was building to kill Mordecai. This story is an incredibly fascinating narrative in Scripture. This hopeless story for all the Jews in the kingdom that inspires hope because of one girl positioned in the palace for such a time as this. And when I read this story, I see so many truths that jump out to me about this life of great adventure that I believe you and I are called to. And I think they're found here in this story The first of those is that God is never late, but he's rarely early. God is never late, but he's rarely early. I believe in your life and in mine, we're going to face some bad times. And if you came to this church believing we were going to tell you that you'd never have problems, you came to the wrong church. I don't believe that's in the Bible. I believe the Bible tells me that it rains on the just and the unjust. I believe that God created us as human beings and put us into this world and released us to live as we chose to do so. And the more we remove ourselves from him, the more we live in this fallen state where sin and bad things are happening in the world and we only turn back to God when we realize how hopeless it actually is. But even in the hopelessness, I believe that God shows up in the midst of that. I've seen it time and time again. It doesn't mean he always answers our prayers the way we want him to, but I believe he steps into our story and he is never late. But I also know that he's very rarely early. Like I want God to show up the moment I get the bad news. I want God to show up the minute I get the bill, the minute I get the bad phone call, the minute the conversation is over and they walk out of the room. And God very rarely ever shows up in that moment to fix it. It's as if he's wanting me to walk a few hours or a few days, or a few weeks, or even a few months, or sometimes even a few years, without him solving it, without him fixing it, to see if I will rely on myself to fix it, or if I will continually turn to him with faith, even believing that in spite of what I see right now, that maybe he would step in and fix this. God is never late, but he's rarely early. The same, second thing that I see in this story is that hope struggles to exist in isolation. You remember the part of the story where Mordecai sends word to Esther that all the Jews are going to be put to death? And she says, what do you want me to do about it? I'm just a girl in a man's world. I can't go before the king. I can't ask him. I can't show up uninvited. I can't show up unannounced. I can't do anything. If I show up, he'll put me to death. Like, what do you want me to do? I am hopeless just like you are hopeless. Until Mordecai gives her some confidence And really speaks sternly to her to encourage her to take a chance and trust God and believe that she is where she is because God destined her to be in that place. Now, I'm going to say the most pastoral thing that I've said all day long. I believe that's why it's important to show up to church. Like, I don't think going to church gets you to heaven faster 
or gets you a better place in heaven or more jewels on your crown. You know what I believe? That this is a community of people that are attempting to walk out their life trusting God more and more in the midst of more and more hopeless situations. And I believe that hope struggles to exist in isolation. My favorite scripture in all the Bible is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I've preached on it from this stage where it says that the temptations that you face are common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will provide a way for you to stand up under it. This idea that the temptations that you face are common to man is an amazing truth because I think what the enemy wants you to do is feel like you are isolated and nothing you're facing is common. Nothing that you're facing, anybody else in the room is facing. Nobody struggles with the same fears you do. Nobody struggles with the same temptations you do. Nobody struggles with the same issues that you do. But God tells me through his word that that's not the case. That maybe the person beside you isn't struggling with the same thing, but somebody across the room probably is. Somebody on your job probably is. Somebody in your cul-de-sac probably is. And if the enemy can just get us isolated, it feels hopeless. We've got nobody to talk to, nobody to shoulder the load with. But if we stay connected in relationship and in community, and I believe in rooms like this with other people that will say, listen, there is hope for you. I've walked a journey like you're walking. I've struggled with the things you're struggling with. You need to stay connected to a community of hope. I believe that hope struggles to exist in isolation. I think there's a third truth that exists in this story. But for me to tell you the third thing that comes out of this story of the book of Esther... I think I've got to finish my story about the park ranger from Phoenix, Arizona. Remember her from 1996? Listen to this. In 1996, Procter & Gamble was one of the largest consumer goods firms on the planet. Their products cleaned one out of every two loads of laundry in America that year, and their revenues topped $35 billion per year. Three years earlier, one of Procter & Gamble's chemists was working with a substance called hydropropyl beta-cyclodextrin, or for the rest of our time today, HPBCD. He was working with that substance in a laboratory, and the chemist was a smoker, and his clothes usually smelled like an ashtray. Well, one day after working with HPBCD, his wife greeted him at the door when he got home and said, did you quit smoking? No, he said, but he was really suspicious. This seemed like something that was kind of a reverse psychology trickery after years of her harassing him to give up cigarettes. She said, well, you just don't smell like smoke is all. The next day, he went back to the lab and started experimenting with HPBCD and various scents. And soon he had hundreds of vials containing fabrics that smelled like wet dogs and cigars and sweaty socks and Chinese food and musty shirts and dirty towels. And when he put HPBCD in water and sprayed it on the samples, the scents were drawn into the chemicals molecules. And after the mist dried, the smell was gone. When the chemist explained his findings to Procter & Gamble's executives, they were ecstatic because for years market research had said that consumers were clamoring for something that could get rid of bad smells, not mask them, but eradicate them altogether. When one team of researchers had interviewed customers, they found that many of them left their blouses or slacks outside after a night at the bar or a party. My clothes smell like cigarettes when I get home, but I don't want to pay for dry cleaning every time I go out, they would say. Procter and Gamble sensed an opportunity and they launched a top secret project to turn HPBCD into a viable product. They spent millions perfecting the formula, finally producing a colorless, odorless liquid that could wipe out almost any foul odor, and they decided to call it Febreze. They asked Drake Stimson, a 31-year-old wonderkin with a background in math and psychology, to lead the marketing team. Stimson was tall and handsome with a strong chin, a gentle voice, and a taste for high-end meals. 
Before joining Procter & Gamble, he had spent five years on Wall Street building mathematical models for choosing stocks. And when he relocated to Cincinnati, where Procter & Gamble were headquartered, he was tapped to help run important business lines. But Febreze was different. It was a chance to launch an entirely new category of product, to add something to a consumer shopping cart that had never been there before. All Stimson needed to do was figure out how to make Febreze into a habit, and the product would fly off the shelves. How tough could that be? Stimson and his colleagues decided to introduce Febreze in a few test markets, Salt Lake City, Boise, Idaho, and Phoenix, Arizona. They flew in, and they handed out samples, and they asked people if they could come by their homes. And over the course of two months, they visited hundreds of households, but their first big breakthrough came when they visited a park ranger in Phoenix. Remember our park ranger, right? The one who had that smell all over her house, all over her life, that was robbing her of her dreams and leaving her hopeless. A few weeks after she got some samples, Stimson and his team showed up in her living room, and this is what happened. Well, I'm glad you got a chance to try Febreze, Stimson said. How'd you like it? She looked at him, and she started crying. I want to thank you, she said. This, this spray has changed my life. After she received a few samples of Febreze, she had gone home and sprayed her couch, sprayed the curtains, the rug, the bedspread, the jeans, the uniform, and the interior of her car, and that bottle ran out. So she got another one, and she sprayed everything else. I've asked all my friends to come over, the woman said, and they can't smell it anymore. The skunk is gone. By now, she was crying so hard that one of Stimson's colleagues was patting her on the shoulder. Thank you so much, this woman said. I feel so free. Thank you. This product is so important. It has literally changed my life. The third truth that I see in the story of Esther that I also see in the story of this park ranger is that hope finds the hopeless. Hope always seems to find the hopeless. The story of Esther, all of the Jewish people had been condemned to death. And yet hope showed up because Esther just happened to be in the palace. She had spent an entire year preparing herself before she was able to speak to the issue that left them hopeless. This park ranger had tried everything she knew to try because of this stink and this stench, the smell of death on her life that was robbing her of her future and robbing her of her dreams. But it just so happened that three years before, a chemist who was a smoker accidentally founded Febreze. Hope just always seems to show up in situations that are hopeless. And here's what I believe about it. Remember what I said. I believe bad things happen sometimes. I believe that there are situations that you're going to walk through that seem hopeless for you. I, I know that. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you something different. But here's what I believe. It doesn't cost you anything to hope. It doesn't cost you anything to hope. In this world that is more and more seeming hopeless, more and more we seem helpless, Less and less people are filled with hope. Because see, hope struggles to exist in isolation. But if we surround ourselves with people that say, no, no, there is hope for you. There is hope in this. There is hope in God the Father. I really do believe that hope is available because hope finds the hopeless. Our pastor for both of our campuses, he oversees both of our campuses 
Dr. Mark Walker, he said this so many times I can quote it. He says that followers of Christ should be the most hope-filled people on the planet. And so for some of us in this room today, maybe the reason that you can't ever seem to conjure up hope is because you are not connected to the God of hope. And maybe today the first thing that you need to do is acknowledge that you need a relationship with Jesus Christ. To say, God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I want you to fill me with hope as you forgive my sins and lead and guide and direct my life. Others of us, you say, hey, I'm a Christ follower, but I'm walking through a very hopeless situation. I would say to you today, turn your eyes back to the one who was your hope to begin with. Lean into him. Rest in him. I promise you, he is never late, but he's rarely early. So just keep hoping and believing. And I believe with all of my heart, he will show up right on time. Connect yourselves to people that are speaking life into you and not death into you. And believe that hope finds the hopeless. And today, if you say, you know what, I'm not really walking through a situation that I need hope, I have hope, things are pretty good, then I would say to you, I would challenge all of us to be hope carriers in a hopeless world, to say even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of things that seem hopeless, we can point to the hope of God the Father. I believe it will be like a breath of fresh air in the midst of the smell and the stench of death in our world. And I encourage you to, uh, to be a hope-filled people. Let's pray together today as we close. God, I thank you that we have opportunity to present our needs to you. I thank you for the chance to call on your name as we declared earlier in this service. And today, God, I ask you, first and foremost, for any person in this room who's not in a relationship with you, that as they respond to you now, as their heart declares to you that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, God, that you would respond to them. I believe you promise us that. And that, God, you would be their hope as you are their forgiver that you would give them life in the places where there is currently death, and that, God, you would lead and guide their lives from this day forward. God, for those in this room who are walking in a hopeless and helpless type of situation, God, I pray that they would turn their eyes to you to find hope, to realize that you're never late, but you're rarely early, and, God, to trust and to believe and to faith enough to know that you're going to show up in the midst of their circumstance. You may not answer it the way they want you to, but God, you'll walk with them every single step of the way. I believe that with all of my heart, it's been true in my life, even in the midst of tragedy. And God, for those of us this morning who are walking out of this place, I pray that we would walk out of this place being carriers of hope in the midst of a dark world. God, where so much smells and stinks like death, that God, you would help us to breathe life into every person we come in contact with. We thank you, God, that you are a God of hope and that you use us to bring life in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.